Thank you for listening to Island Recast. For more information, please go to gmpc.org. Being the youth pastor, I get some really good questions. And uh, oftentimes, students think I'm kind of the answer man, and I'm not. Um, But I'm thankful when they ask me questions that I do know the answers to because I feel really good about it. So one of the questions I often get, especially being in a community like Coronado, because if you think about it and if you've ever counted how many worshiping communities there are in Coronado, there's like 14. And that that doesn't count kind of a couple of the satellite churches that have popped up here and there. So there are 14 worshiping communities in Coronado. And the question I get is, why so many and what makes them different? And I go, oh, yeah, I know the answer to this one. This is an easy one. Uh, You're throwing me a softball. Uh, So if you've ever thought about it and if you've ever wondered, the biggest difference is not necessarily theological. And the biggest difference is not necessarily how we gather and the style and the kind of worship style that we have in the sanctuary, right? Those are not the things specifically that distinguish us from one another. Um, What distinguishes us, what, what sets us apart is our polity. The way we operate and the way where the, actually a better way of saying it is where is the authority in the church? So I'm gonna, there's three models, right? Super easy. There's the Episcopal model with a lowercase e, and that authority comes from up high, right? So if you're in the Episcopal model, you've got a pope, potentially, or actually you do, and then that authority is the bishops and the cardinals and then the priests, and that's where the authority lies, right? Um, The other end of that spectrum is the congregational model. And these are churches and worshiping communities where the congregation as a whole has the authority. So think about the Calvary chapels. Um, Think about the Baptist churches. Those are congregational models. Think of every non-denominational church that you may or may not have attended or passed in the last 24 hours, right? Those are all congregational models. The authority lies in the congregation. They make the decisions and have all the power. But that leaves... The Presbyterians, we're like kind of cool. At least I think so. Um, We're kind of smack dab in the middle of the two. We're the Presbyterian model. And that Presbyterian model is what we're experiencing now as as we have launched this search for an interim pastor where we're partnering with our brothers and sisters who are also Presbyterian to find an interim pastor. And then they will also help us at the presbytery level. They'll also help us find and call our next senior pastor at Grand Memorial, right? Um, There's 30 churches in the San Diego Presbytery. And no one church has all the authority. Actually, the authority is shared between the pastor, the teaching elder, or the minister of word and sacrament, and the ruling elder. Right? So we, many of you know who Don is, right? Don Stoyer is a ruling elder. You, you know Doug Reavy, he's a ruling elder. And they, as a session, send a representative to Presbytery. I know you might be bored, but this kind of excites me, right? Because the, the authority is, 
is not in the lay leadership alone, and nor is it in the pastoral leadership. It's a parity, a shared responsibility of the two. And there are theological differences. But when a student asks me, what really separates the, the Episcopal Church from the Presbyterian? What makes us different? That's how I answer the question. I go, it's the, our polity is what sets us apart and distinguishes us. Because we are the church together. And we have been taught for the last 10 to 15 years that there is only one church in Coronado. There's only one church in San Diego. There's only one church in California. There's only one church in the world, and that is the body of Christ. And there's nowhere really in Scripture that tells us this is how you do it every week and every day. So there's room for, for developing our own polity and our own systems and our own strengths lean into that, which I think is kind of beautiful because the body of Christ is so diverse, so different, that we as a church, as a body of Christ, as the Spirit leads us, we are welcomed into a community of faith. We're welcomed into a worshiping community and a system that makes sense. And the Presbyterian system makes total sense to me. But if, if we look at Scripture, there's no real one way to do it. But Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, the church in Ephesus, um, does a wonderful job in chapters 1, 2, and 3 to lay out a theology of God a theology of humanity, a theology of salvation. He lays out a wonderful theology. And I think we as this worshiping community have a beautiful theology of the church because we don't go to church. You are the church. You know who you are and you know your identity in Christ. And Paul sets that foundation in Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then when he gets to chapter 4, he turns a corner and he begins to tell us what the church, the people, ought to reflect. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to, uh, to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 with me. And as you're turning there, you, you got to know that Paul was under house arrest in Rome. And he's written, to, he's written uh, four letters at this point, three of which are to churches and one to an individual. And he wants them to know what it means to be unified in the church. So here is the word of God. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And we're going to read through verse 16. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble, gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. 
But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Wow, that's a mouthful. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. There are four parts to this passage that I think if we step back, we can see them fairly clearly. He first talks about being unified as one body, one spirit. Then he lays out what we, he would call a foundation of unity, which is grounded in theology. And then Paul tells us about the gifts of unity. And those are listed as spiritual gifts. Then he challenges the church. He says, now you should be growing in your faith, growing in unity. And he starts by saying, look, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What calling is he talking about? What calling is he talking about? See, earlier in, in chapter one, he tells us. He tells us that for God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined, predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters through Christ Jesus in accordance with his pleasure and will. Paul is emphasizing that we are to live our lives in response to the call that God has placed on our lives. The call from redem to redemption, the call away from sin that separates us from God, the call to restoration, to be one body, to be restored. See, it is the effects of grace that transform our lives and that we live transformed people here and now in the kingdom. It's like when you get a gift, you get super excited about the gift. And the gift that we receive is life, life abundantly. We're new creations and that God has deemed us his children, sons and daughters of God. Paul is urging us to live a life worthy of that calling to be called sons and daughters of God. That you and I are God's ambassadors in this world and even more importantly, to each other. 
to each other. That's the unity that he's talking about. And we can't confuse unity with uniformity. Those are two different things. Unity comes by the Spirit, while uniformity comes often by the pressures outside of the Spirit that guides and leads us and directs us. And the unity in the Spirit reflects some really amazing characteristics. Some that I failed to have this morning and failed miserably this morning, right? We read this list. Humility, gentleness, patience. Man, I failed just gentleness and patience this morning getting out of the house and into the car. That was not what I reached for this morning. And then, then he goes on and says, you're bearing <laughs> with one another in love. Um, someone translated this, it was, it was kind of funny, uh, putting up with one another in love. Like we, <laughs> yeah, you're like, mm-hmm. <laughs> We're like putting up with one another in love. We, it's really sad to think that Someone in my family of faith might be putting up with me. Oh, that I might hurt them or annoy them in such a way that they put up with me. But they love me, so they do. Because we are one body in Christ. And he goes on and he says, look, the effort for unity is not something that Unity is already present in our body, in our midst. We are unified already. And he's going to tell us what we're unified in in a minute. But I want to like look at some of these characteristics, right? Having the spirit of humility. When you think you have it, you probably don't. If you're writing a book on humility, you probably are lacking humility in that moment. Gentleness, someone said, described it this way. And I have to read it to you. Gentleness is someone <laughs> who doesn't present themselves as brittle or hostile, that no one wants to be around. That's the opposite of gentleness. And even the, gent the opposite of gentleness is <laughs> even if they're right, they're kind of repulsively right. That's not gentleness. Gentleness is someone who handles another person's heart with care, like they're fragile because we all are. Patience, someone described as this, Having a wide and big soul. Patience is the exercise of the largest of soul that can endure annoyances and difficulties over a period of time. And then making every effort for the unity of the Spirit. We're asked, we're 
We're charged to invest in it. We're, we're charged not to create it because it's already there. The Spirit has given it to us. We're charged to hold it up. And we hold it up in the bonds of peace because the peace that we share is based on the peacemaking that Christ does on our behalf as he calls us one body and one church. And this, this is all found theologically ridiculously important. Some people might think that you don't need a theology, but we're all theologians. I love studying theology. You're all theologians. Um, I... I had a, a somewhat conversation recently um, with, with a student. I was like, hey, what do you, what, like, what do you think about regularly? And what, what captures your mind? And, and uh, the student was like, well, I, I've been thinking about the Trinity. And I'm like, oh, can I ask you a question now? Can we turn the tables just slightly? Because I'd like to know about the Trinity a little bit more. And he goes, well, I haven't figured it out yet. I'm like, good. Keep thinking about this. Keep working out your theology of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because it's good. Our theology informs our behavior. It informs how we respond and act in this world with one another. Some, I, I've heard people say, I don't really need to work on my theology. It's really, I need to focus in on love. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He lays out a, a clear theology. And we're united in this theology, this doctrine, because it's essential. And oftentimes when we think about churches and worshiping communities and how they practice um, the sacraments, we, we often get wrapped up in the minor leagues and not focus on the majors. And Paul is pointing us to the majors here. He's pointing us to the main pieces, the non-negotiables we might say. Did you see them in the list? He said, one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. You see, one body. There, there may be many worshiping communities in the world, but there is one church and Christ is the head. There is one spirit and that Holy Spirit indwells in each believer that we belong to the Lord and we belong to each other. One hope. Think back to Advent for a moment. Hope is a beautiful thing. The hope of the resurrection that we hold together, the hope that Christ will one day return, that is the hope we share with our brothers and sisters across the street. That is the hope we share with those who call Christ their Savior who call him Lord. In the first century, when they, professed, when they professed Jesus is Lord, that there is one Lord, they were definitively saying Nero is not. That Christ is Lord of my life and Nero is not. And our one faith is in that one person, that one Lord, Jesus. That we are committed to Christ and a common act of surrender to him. That our lives are surrendered to Christ because he is transforming us into the image that we were created to be in. One baptism. And there's lots of conversation 
theologically about what this baptism might be. Is it the baptism of water or, or is it a different baptism? And I think Paul is talking about the baptism of the Spirit, that our conversion moment into Christ, when that, when that moment where we turn and repent and turn to God and say, I can't do this on my own. And God calls us sons and daughters. I think that's the moment where Paul is focusing our attention. Because there is one baptism, just as there is one spirit. And he goes on and he says, not only there's one baptism, but one God and Father. We are God's children in the family of faith, loving and serving that same God, working towards unity. And then he, he moves on to how we work towards this unity. And we learn that Christ gives us gifts. It's a beautiful picture in the Old Testament uh, that Paul is quoting in Psalm 68 verse 18, and, and it, it's a picture of a king in the Old Testament, a conquering king who's almost like demanding and receiving gifts. But this picture that Paul is painting for us in the New Testament is a conquering king who offers us gifts and gives gifts to the body. And as we read them, some are given the gift of apostleship, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And if you know anything about what it means to be an apostle, uh, we kind of define it by two things. One, an apostle is someone who has seen Jesus' ministry. And the other part of that is they've seen him in his resurrected body. You saw him ascend, and you were sent by Christ to be an apostle. Now, I, if if you were around in the first century, you all look really, really good for being around in the first century. But you weren't. I think the principle of this is true for us today because we have seen Christ's ministry in us and we have seen the new body, we have seen the resurrected life in us. And we hope and anticipation for Christ's return. And that you and I are sent. And maybe God is gifting you to be the one to be sent as an apostle. And then the prophets. Prophets are, are funny people. Um, we often think that prophets are the ones who just tell us what's going to happen in the future. And, and that's true. That is one role of a prophet. But the, the other role of a prophet that we often forget is that the prophet calls us back to a relationship with God. And, and this one's hard because maybe God has given you a word, a prophetic word to speak to another brother or sister to call them back because maybe Gentleness and humility have not been their characteristics where they've shown that they are like Christ. And that, that can be hard to receive, but we need prophets in our lives. We need that gift because it builds up the body. And there are evangelists who are called to proclaim the good news. Many of us remember Billy Graham who called hundreds of thousands of people 
They came to, they filled stadiums so they hear the gospel. And Billy Graham was gifted by the Holy Spirit as an evangelist. And when people heard the gospel, they turned to Jesus. Maybe you have that gift. Maybe Christ is giving you that gift as a part of the body. And the expectation isn't that you're calling hundreds of thousands of people, but maybe your neighbor, maybe someone close to you will hear the gospel that you proclaim because that gift has been given to you. And they might turn to Jesus. And then pastors and teachers, those guys talk forever. And they just keep talking and talking, but their role in this gift is the responsibility of feeding and nurturing and equipping the church. And I'm so glad that we, we're Presbyterians and we do this in partnership with each other. That wasn't going to go there. It was just going to fall. That we share in the ministry together. That pastors are, are called to equip you to do ministry. For you to reach the community. For you to meet the needs of those sitting next to you. For you to sit next to someone and hug them and pray with them and comfort them to put your hand on them that they might know that God is with them because you are the flesh. You are the hands and feet of Jesus that they're experiencing at that moment. See, pastors and teachers are the shepherds to equip you to do that good work. And too often, the expectation from a congregation is that the pastors and the staff do all that work. And I'm grateful for a staff who does a lot of work. Some of us work overtime all the time and work really, really hard um, and they do good work and they're doing good ministry. But that work is shared with the congregation. And I'm grateful that we have so many of you who teach Sunday school classes, who are singing in the praise team and in the choir, and that you commit to praying for this congregation. That is good work that pastors and shepherds equip you to do. And the last thing that Paul addresses is about growth. And that marks of spiritual growth is that we look more like Christ. Every single day we look more like Christ. That as we draw closer to Christ, we reflect Christ's character of humility and gentleness, patience, bearing in love with one another. That's the list. Do you remember that list? like changing your default setting. That this morning, instead of being frustrated with the way we were getting out of the house, I'm, Christ is resetting my, my settings and changing that in me. And it's a process. And I need to be reminded of that because there are marks of maturity and spiritual growth And Paul says that we share the truth in love. That one can be challenging. Because it's said that truth without love is brutality. But love without truth is hypocrisy. How do we, as the church, as we draw closer to Christ, reflect more of his character and that when we speak to one another, we speak to one another in love because we are brothers and sisters, one body, one Lord, one spirit, 
one baptism, one God. Do you get it? We are one body. And that we encourage one another towards the goal of becoming more and more like Christ. We can't do that by ourselves. We're not intended to do relationship in isolation. Relationship is meant to do in community, much like the Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are to live in community. Thank you for listening to Island Recast. For more information, please go to gmpc.org. Last week I shared with you what a friend reminds me almost every week. He says, we are better together than apart. For we are designed to be in relationship with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and with each other, edifying and encouraging and building each other up for the unity, eagerly pursuing that each and every day. And I hope this week you'll reach for humility and gentleness. I hope that you'll reach for patience as Christ continues to work in you and through you, transforming you into the person that God has created you to be. That's living into the kingdom. Amen?